Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, when I was 22 years old, I made a decision. I made a brave, bold decision to change the world for Jesus Christ by tattooing myself. Now, give <laughs> me straight, at 22, this, is a, this was kind of a, as far as my vision could go. I, I decided I was going to get my first tattoo, and, and I got it here right here on my wrist. Now, growing up in the evangelical culture that I did, tattoos, we were kind of uneasy about them. They weren't like explicitly prohibited, but we didn't know a lot of people who had tattoos, and, and it, it really wasn't like a goal in, in my family to go get a tattoo. But I had my mindset on this phrase that I had learned in Hebrew class. You see, one of my undergraduate majors was biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek, biblical Greek. Now, if you're asking, what do you do with a major like that? I'll tell you, you become a tattoo quality control expert. <laughs> By far, the most, pastoral, the most requested pastoral service that I've ever offered is, how do you say this in Hebrew? Does this look right in Greek? Because I don't want to get something tattooed on my body and it not be right. And so this has come in handy so many times. Someone's like, how do you say peace and love in China in Hebrew? And I'm like, you don't say that at all. And you definitely don't put that on your body. But here's what it would look like. And then you observe other people's tattoos and realize that does not say what I think that person thinks it says. (laughs) But you just keep it to yourself. You don't want to ruin someone's day. I was in Hebrew class, and we were going through a passage, and it was a few years before I had gotten the tattoo, and I had come across this phrase, and as we unpacked it together as a class, it, it really kind of brought everything together for me in that moment. I don't know if you've had a moment like that in your life where um, there, some phrase, or maybe it's a song, or maybe it's a poem, or maybe a passage of scripture kind of perfectly encapsulates all that God is revealing himself to you at that time. I thought I want to mark that. Now, if you are uh, evangelical like me in a culture that's a little uneasy with tattoos, here's how you rationalize it. You say, I'm going to get a tattoo. I'm doing it for Jesus, right? Because people are going to ask me, what does that tattoo mean? And I'll tell them all about Jesus. And then you quickly learn no one cares what you have tattooed in your body. No one has ever asked me, not once, what does this tattoo say? They just think I didn't wash and there's some dirt there, if they even see it at all. I do get some questions every now and then about the weird cross that I've gotten, a little bit bigger, a little bit weirder. But since no one's ever asked me, I'm going to take the opportunity this morning to tell you uninvited (laughs) what's on my wrist and why I think it's so beautiful and so important. So turn with me to the book of Micah, if you would. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback underneath the seat around you, and you're more than welcome to grab one of those, pull out your phone, whatever you'd like to do. We'll be in Micah. Chapter 6, if you're in one of those black hardbacks, it's a little prophetic book. It can be hard to find, so I'll help you out here. It's page 779. Micah chapter 6 is where we will be. The book of Micah is a book of sermons that was given by a prophet to Israel a long, long time ago. The book of Micah is just kind of a file cabinet of sermons that he has preached, that he delivered to the people of Israel And in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, which we'll be in this morning, he gives one of these sermons, and I want to look at it with you. It ends in a very beautiful, poetic verse that's become very familiar to most Christians. You might recognize it this morning. Let's walk through it 
together. Micah chapter 6, picking up in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people and then he will contend with Israel. So what's happened is God is calling Micah as his messenger to set up a trial. A court case is about to convene and God is bringing charges against his people. In the past year or two, you've heard a lot about indictments in the news, people who like indictments and want indictments, people who are upset about indictments. Here, though, God says, I've got an indictment, and it's about the people who claim to be mine. Now, for the Israelites, just like you and me, it was probably surprising. We probably would think if God were to come to us through a prophet and say he's got a complaint, we would go, good, so do we, those people, right? Right? <laughs> And God says, no, 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 the complaint's about you. You're the, you're the one listed in this lawsuit. And Israel's kind of shocked. They're kind of put on edge. God says, we're going to call witnesses. And if you notice, what are the witnesses he calls? The mountains and the hills. This is a cosmic trial. He calls the mountains and the hills because they have been there. They've seen everything. The hills have eyes. They heard what God said and what the people said. They saw what God did, and then they've seen what the people did. Nothing has gotten past them. God has a complaint, and he says, Micah, round everyone up. We're going to hash this out. So often, you and I have complaints that we take to God. We have indictments, and God here flips it on its head and says, no, no, I'm coming to you with a complaint. So we keep reading in verse 3. This is what the Lord says, O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." Watch how he opens up his complaint, his indictment. He asks two questions. And these are not questions I think you would expect God to ask. He says, oh, my people. Now, we, we shouldn't just read over that really quickly. We got to catch the emotion and the loyalty in that my. This is not like a stranger or just some person on the street. This is like when your son disappoints you, when your daughter disappoints you. Someone on your team, right, betrays you. My people. But instead of jumping in and listing out all the things that they've done wrong, he says, what did I do? He starts questioning himself. He does like a self-evaluation. He takes inventory of his own heart and his own actions. Imagine. God comes, and before he even gets to what's gone wrong, he doesn't come threatening with punishment the first thing on his lips. He comes and he says, my people, what did I do? Did I do something? Did I somehow not set you up for success? Did I somehow communicate to you poorly? Out of all the things that I've said and that I've done, where, if anywhere, did I go wrong? And he says, how have I burdened you? Right? How have I put too much weight on you? How have I made this too difficult or too hard? How did I put an obstacle in your way that made you stumble? God, God sits down and he thinks through history. 
He looks through what he's said and what he's done. And while we can appreciate, I think, that posture on the Lord's behalf, the evidence is okay for him. And it turns up bad for his people. He says, let's go through what I've done. And he recounts for them all these acts of faithfulness that he has given to them, that he's participated in. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. In Hebrew, there's a play on words here between how have I wearied you and I brought you up. These, these two phrases sound almost exactly alike. You might get this in a translation if we did it like this. How have I burdened you for I unburdened you from the land of Egypt? How have I pushed you down for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery? This is the Exodus. This is when God took the Israelites in slavery and freed them. This is the paradigmatic. This is the most foundational kind of act of salvation for God's people until his son Jesus would come. And now for you and I, that's what we look at. That's what we see as, as kind of the foundation of salvation. God's one great redeeming act to save his people. He says, I, I've brought you out of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I gave you leadership. Then he referenced a couple people and a couple of places. And, and what he's doing with this reference is just, he, he's saying, I also brought you into a new land, right? We, we crossed the Jordan. I gave you a promised land for you to dwell. Where did I go wrong? What have I done? Where have I fallen short? And a dialogue begins between God and his people. This is so often the case. We sometimes fear God and we fear hearing from God because we think he will come with a heavy fist. And instead, what you find throughout the scriptures is God is surprisingly willing and open, even eager at times, to have a dialogue to ask a question, to get an answer, to hear. And so the defendants, his people, put out their lawyer, and the representative comes forth. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is Israel personified talking, and and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? This passage moves forward through some repetition. So twice God says, my people, my people. There's also a repetition of this word, what? God says, what have I done? And now his people say, what should we bring? What would appease you? What should we come to you with? And they're ready to bargain. They've got an arbitrator. They're ready to negotiate. Do you see how they escalate here? Okay, how about like some quality? A calf one years old. How about some quantity? Thousand rams. How about both? Like 10,000 rivers of oil. And then, perhaps insultingly, they offer to God their own children. Maybe this is a sarcastic reply. Like, what else do you want from us? You want for us to give up our own children? As if God has asked so much of them and they've been meeting every requirement, been doing everything that that God has asked from them and, and they're just completely at their wit's end. Or perhaps they've become so warped in their thinking that what seems very obviously to not be what God desires, to be the opposite of what God desires, is actually on the table for them as part of what they think might be a faithful response to them. I don't know if you know religious people, 
I do think it is the case that sometimes they become so warped in thinking that the very opposite of what God so clearly asks for in the Scriptures through His Son often is what they come to in their hand, approaching Him. Notice the bargaining that they're trying to do with God. So, so in this one passage, we don't get laid out for us. The book of Micah is filled with them. Primarily what, what the people of Israel have done that has so angered God is that they have forsaken what Jesus would call the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. So the poor are taking advantage of, or the rich, I'm sorry, are taking advantage of the poor. People are starving. There is religious and political corruption. I know it's hard to imagine, right? A world where these kind of things happen. I saw someone post about Epiphany today, right? And he was like, Epiphany, the day where we um, in Scripture remember an angry tyrant who wanted to destroy anything that threatened his reign. Who could, who could imagine, right? I mean, how different the world has become. We have none of those around anymore. Religious, political corruption, a gap in wealth, and access to resources, and then a group of people who are doing this in God's name and who think that they can buy God off with some ritual activity, with some burnt offerings. I think that's so like human beings and so like us. So often we know or, or we've heard at least what, what God wants from us, and instead we come to him with something else. Will this do? Now, you know you're bargaining with God if you've got more than one offer, right? I mean, if, you've, if you're like ready to level up, you know you're in manipulation. Something's not right here. Oh, you didn't want that? It's okay. I had another thing prepared. How about this? And the obvious answer to these questions is, is no. You see, it's, it's not this ritual purity that God wanted. What God wanted was ethical purity, moral transformation. And so in verse 8, here's the infamous verse. He has told you, O man, what is good. What is good? What's the good life? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Is it a burnt offering? Is it thousands of rams? Is it your firstborn child? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And in one sentence, you get the heart of God's desire for you and I. You get the good life God wants for his people, beautifully summed up. Three things, he says. He says, he's told you. This, is, this has been around. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Now, it's important to note all three of these things are, are things that have been attributed to God himself. If we list off love, faithfulness, and justice, the scriptures over and over and over ascribe these characteristics to God himself. God is a God of love and faithfulness and justice. And, and so what you see throughout the scriptures is, is God never really asks of anything from his people other than, they, than that they reflect back to him what he is. And he wants his people to live out this type of life. Now, the problem is not religion in and of itself or, or rituals in and of themselves. The problem is when they're used as an excuse to avoid other things that God has asked us for. The problem is when God has said, I want you to do this, and we say, how about church instead? 
I want you to do this. How about Sunday school instead? It's not that church is a problem or Sunday school is a problem or any of those things. It's that they're a problem when they replace, when they're used as an avoidance tactic, when they're used to try to manipulate or trick God. That's not buying it. And he has so much more he wants for his people. And so he tells them, this is what is good. Notice how active these three things are. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Three actions that God wants. Now, what I've got on my wrist is the second phrase here, the second of the three commands that we have been given. Love, kindness. And even in your ESV, there's a little note after that word kindness telling you, like, maybe we would put a different word there. That word after love, kindness, is a hard one to translate. It's the word that the Hebrew people reached for when they wanted to describe the truth, the moment, the feeling of a God who created all things, giving love and forgiveness to a people who don't deserve it. We might call it grace. We might call it faithfulness. We might call it unfailing love, steadfast love. It can even just be translated love. And in a sense, you could have here to love love, to love grace. I think this phrase right here in the middle kind of holds together the other two. It kind of is part of the central foundation of this response God is looking for. You see, the heart of the covenant that God had made with Israel, the heart of the new covenant God has made with you and I through Christ, at the heart of it stands grace. At the heart of it stands mercy, stands forgiveness. And a type of grace that should blow you away. A type of grace that makes you fall on your knees. A type of grace that makes it hard to describe Sometimes, if you're like me, you might think, looking around at other people, doing a comparison game, it's not too unreasonable that God loves me. (laughs) Like, okay, yeah, I need forgiveness for some stuff, right? But it's not too unreasonable for God to be like, yeah, I like that guy. And then I can look at other people, or groups of people, and be like, it's also not unreasonable to see why he doesn't like them. Grace, kindness, faithfulness, this, this word here, it comes and it blows that whole game up. To the extent that you understand and recognize how undeserving and unworthy you are of God's love and salvation is the same extent, I think, that you'll be able to extend that to other people. It's people who really feel like they've been forgiven. They've been given something they couldn't and didn't and never will deserve, who are able not only to understand how God would do that for other people, but also able to do that themselves. Love, love, love kindness. And this, I think, helps these other two flow out naturally. Do justice and then walk humbly with God. These are, are, if we're thinking in like spatial terms, the horizontal aspect of our life, or vertical, and then the horizontal aspect of our life. The vertical would be to do justice. Justice is taking care of other people. Justice is righting all the things in our world that that have gone wrong. Walking humbly with God is 
is having this relationship with God where we worship and adore him, where we hear and respond to him. And there has at times been, in certain circles of Christianity, a debate on the inside, an inter-team debate about whether Christians should be focused on justice and helping the world or the relationship with God. Like, there are some Christians who would say, all of this is a distraction. God cares about your heart and your soul, and you need to get right with him individually and just walk faithfully until you are back at heaven. Others would say, no, 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 this is missing the whole point. We need to get out there. It's a messy world, and we need to fix it. And often they come to a head and can't agree. And the scriptures, it seems to me, are abundantly clear that it's a, it's a false choice. You need both. He says, do justice. This is not just be just, like avoid acting unjustly. This is kind of a more aggressive, like pursue justice. And again, this is something that has been said of God throughout the scriptures. One of the things God has set out to do in our world is make everything that has gone wrong and make it right again. And his people are called to join him on that mission, live life with God making wrongs right. This is what justice is. This is what we're called to do. Do justice. I don't think you would be wrong to read that and go, maybe God is calling his people, he's calling them to be an be activist. Do stuff. Be loud about it. Make a difference. And then we're told walk humbly with God. Humbly, this word, you could maybe translate it as carefully. It's got this connotation of like guardedness or intentionality. And others like, no, we, we need to just be real focused on God himself and not get entangled in all these worldly things. We're called to be contemplatives. We're called to be worshipers. The scriptures would say, though, that the God's people aren't just called to be activists and they're not just called to be contemplatives. They're called to be both. They're called to be contemplative activists. The author Brian Zahn puts it like this, I think perfectly. He says, if you want to discern the actions of God, you must first learn to wait in quiet contemplation. Before you become an activist, you must first become a contemplative. Otherwise, you'll just be a reactivist. And reactivists merely recycle anger and toxicity and keep the world in an angry place. Jesus, he says, was a contemplative activist, but never a re activist. So should we protest or should we pray? Should we march or should we meditate? Should we work or should we worship? The scriptures say it's both. And if you don't have the one, the other doesn't work right. The other will go off the rails very quickly. Christians are called to pray and protest. Christians are called to march and meditate. Christians are called to worship and work. God doesn't want ritual purity from his people. What he wants, he says, is a transformed people who are transforming the world. This is what God is after. What do you, what do you require of me? What have I wanted this whole time? What is the good? I want to transform people, people whose character has been rebirthed, made new, and I want them to go out and join me on my mission of making other things new in this world, to transform people who are transforming the world. This is what I've always been after. And anyone who tries to substitute that for religious games should listen into this trial, should put themselves in the jury box, 
Do justice, love mercy, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. These are all active things. And so this morning I want to suggest a practice for each one of them, a way that we can actually do these things because they are given to us in such an active voice. And so let's start with justice, to do justice. Now, it's important for you and I as Christians to define the word justice before we start talking about justice. Because justice is an empty container word, I like to call it. It's, it's one of these words that if we're not careful, it gets defined culturally and it washes away the gospel, the truth of the scriptures. There are some words like this, like freedom. Oftentimes, I'm talking to someone and we're talking about freedom. I start to get the sense we're not talking about the same thing. The freedom of like a liberal democracy, right, is not the same freedom of Christ. In a kind of liberal modern democracy, freedom is the freedom to do whatever you'd like to do. Basically, it's really the freedom to consume. The freedom to choose from an Xbox or a PlayStation. Congratulations, you got what you wanted. Hundreds of years of work, and, and we're standing at Walmart, and this is, this is what it's about. The freedom in Christ is not a freedom to do this or to that or to do this or to that. It's a freedom to have life. It's a freedom to obey. You see, there's a type of freedom that's actually slavery, and there's a type of slavery that's actually freedom. This is what Paul says in, in, in the book of Romans. Justice is like this as well. Never assume that God's justice is the same as the world's justice. I mean, look, the world can't even decide, agree with itself about what justice is. Our nation sure can't. If you talk to someone on this side and someone on that side and you ask them, is this law just? Is this practice just? You're, you're going to often get two different answers. And the church often gets sidetracked, distracted, I think, by these, these, national, these national conversations about justice. And justice becomes something we debate and not something we do. Justice becomes something we expect or hope for the government to enact and not something that we actually are moving our feet to do, that we are opening our mouths to do, that we are putting our resources towards. Now, if you want to do justice, what history has shown us is you should be prepared to sacrifice. Because if there is injustice in the world... It's happened either on purpose or by accident. If it's happened on purpose, those people are usually powerful and wealthy, and they wanted what happened to happen, and they don't want you to change it. And if they did it on accident, like you and me, they often don't want to admit that they were wrong. That's hard to do. If you want to pursue justice, if you want to call out things that are wrong in the world, be prepared for people to come after you. Be prepared to lose some reputation. Be prepared to lose a couple friends. Be prepared to sacrifice. And be prepared for the powers that be to come after you, to distract you. I am no teller of the future. I don't know what's coming or what's not coming. It seems as if, reading the tea leaves, in our global situation today, there's a possibility now that there will be military escalation between United States of America, and Iran. It doesn't have to happen, right? I'm not saying it is happening. I haven't checked the news in the last couple hours. Who knows? Justice makes you ask hard questions. Justice makes people uncomfortable. And justice calls out where your real loyalties are, where your real allegiance lies. 
And so before the church gets drafted to become the chaplain of the empire, once again, the church needs to ask some hard questions about justice. What is just about any activity that might kill Iranian civilians? Or will purposely kill Iranian civilians? What is just about any activity that will kill, might kill, or purposely kill Iranian Christians? Now, as soon as you ask this question, someone's going to tell you, you've got to pick a side. You're either for America or you're asking questions like this. And you need to simply say, I refuse. I don't have to pick a side. My loyalty is to Christ. My job is not to figure out all your problems. My job is not to baptize your decisions. My job is to look around the world at a human species loved dearly by God and advocate for their best well-being. And it's not just foreign countries. It's for our soldiers, our young men and women, for people all around the world. But justice is going to make you sweat a little bit. And it's going to put some ants in your pants a little bit. Now, how do we do this? What, what, what practice might I invite you into this morning to, to do justice? I'm going to invite you this morning for justice to listen. I think listening is the first step of acting justly in our world. It's often hard to tell when we are acting in an unjust way or when we're part of a larger system that is unjust. It's kind of like fish swimming in water. It's hard to, to realize the water that you're in. One of the ways that you're going to be able to do this is humbly listening to other people, particularly people who have experienced injustice. Listen to the Christian in Syria whose kids starved after military action. Don't come with your own like, assumptions, right? I know you've got things that you believe and you want to defend and you think we're right. Just listen. Listen to that person who's been affected by racism. Listen to that person who's been taken advantage of by the wealthy. Just, just come real humbly. Read the people you wouldn't normally read. Listen to those people you wouldn't normally listen to. I'm not saying you have to agree with them. You have to endorse them. But you're never going to go anywhere if you don't start to listen. Listen and learn. I think that's our invitation to do justice. Now, love, love, love mercy, love kindness. Like I said, I think to the extent that we're able to do this, this is the same extent we're able to, to do this for and with other people. I want you in your mind to imagine a person that you have a hard time thinking is worthy of the love of God or is worthy of God's forgiveness. Maybe it's a like, historical figure in your mind. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker. Maybe they're sitting right next to you. I don't know. Here's my practice for this one. If we're going to listen and learn to try to act more justly, I want you to pray to try to love mercy. Notice how intense this phrase is. This is, this is it seems so foundational to me. It's so important and so beautiful. Because it's not just show mercy to people, right? There's a difference. You can act mercifully towards someone and not have a heart behind it. There's a difference between being merciful and then loving being merciful. Do you see that difference? 
having like an appetite for it, having a heart for it, wanting people to be forgiving, wanting people to not get what they have coming for them. This is the call for God's people because this is what we have experienced. This is what we have received. You want the good life? Then as I've existed for all eternity in perfect, sacrificial, forgiving love, so you now start to participate in. And so here's, here's what we do. We pray for those people who we have a hard time forgiving or loving or a hard time understanding them as worthy of forgiveness or love. It can even seem silly to you. It can be a historical figure. Hitler. Because what's going to happen is when you do this, your heart is going to turn on you. You're going to bump up against yourself, right? What about this and what about that? And this is when you are forced to do some soul work that I think leads you to a beautiful, good place. And you're forced to ask questions about what makes me different from these people. How does God treat me differently or see me differently from that person? How are my actions more forgivable than this person's actions? Why am I worthy of a redemption story and this person is not? So we listen and we learn. We pray. And then we're told to walk humbly with God. Walk carefully, be intentional. The invitation I invite you to participate in this morning for walking humbly with God is, is to commit. To commit to some spiritual practices, some faith habits. And as we start a new year, a new decade, right, what better time than now to do that? It could be praying on a regular basis, different ways. It could be reading scripture and learning more about scripture. It could be ministering. It could be big, it could be small. I mean, it could just be sharing my faith with other people, inviting other people to church. But to commit, to be intentional about your relationship with God because if you're not intentional, like all relationships, it will start to drift. You'll start to lose sight of the goal. You'll start to fall off the track. And look, if you're not walking humbly with God and you go out and you try to do justice, right, it's, it's probably going to be angry and toxic. Just more of what we've had going for thousands of years, right? And if, if you want to go love God, commit to your relationship with God, and you're using that as a way out of what Jesus again would call the weightier manners of justice and mercy, you're going to have a, a faith that's, that's not healthy. You're going to have a, a distorted relationship with God. They, they, they both need each other. They both feed off of each other. What is good? What does God want? Well, he wants to transform people who will transform the world. And so this morning I invite you, would you do justice? Would you listen? Would you learn? Would you love mercy? Would you pray? And forgive? And would you walk humbly with your God? Will you hear God say, my people, and respond back with a, my God?